You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I awake in the world. I find myself aware, alert, curious, anxious. What is the world all about? I ask many questions of the world. I try to discern foundations, to dig for irreducible elements of which the world is constructed. I have a favorite question. It's a question that is as deceptive as it is deep. It is a question that is very short. What exists? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. Lots of things exist, of course, but that is not the question. The question, the challenge, is to discern the least number of categories, ultimate categories, within which every specific thing of every general kind can be classified. What are the minimum number of ultimate categories of existence, such that no category can be explained by any other category? Because if I could get down to such ultimate categories, then maybe, just maybe, I can catch insights of what the world is all about, if about anything at all. That's why I've come to Crete, for a conference of physicists who seek fundamentals and philosophers who seek foundations. Can I find the ultimate categories of existence? I begin with a philosopher of science who focuses on foundations in physics and cosmology, metaphysics and mind, Barry Lower. Barry, we know all this stuff exists, oceans and beautiful rocks. At the most fundamental level, when you get whatever categories you have, you can't explain one in terms of the other. What, what do you get down to absolute bedrock? Philosophers have always been interested in, in fact, this could even be their job description. Huh. Tell us what are the fundamental kinds of things that exist and tell us what does exist. Although I find that when I ask my friends those questions, I lose my friends. (laughs) Um, But I am very interested in what are laws of physics. There are fundamental laws of physics, but whether they're metaphysically fundamental, we might say bedrocks of existence, that is a question. There are two kinds of views about that. One is the view that they are fundamental and the bedrocks of existence, and the other is the view that they're not. The first view we might call a very metaphysical view and goes back to the origins of the concept of laws in the 16th and 17th century and particularly in Descartes. And he laid out the idea that it was the job of the sciences to find laws. And in fact, physics particularly, but other sciences too, have taken on this job since then. And this of course made a job for philosophers to find out what laws are. One view is that the notion of law had a sort of theological origin, that what makes things happen in the world ultimately is due to God really moving things around, and that the laws describe how gods will move things around. So there's a whole other idea about laws, which say that laws themselves don't have any power to make things happen. Laws 
just describe what actually does happen. So the two views are a metaphysical view that says that laws are in some way part of the fundamental ontology in addition to space and time and the material contents of space and time. And laws make things happen. And then there's the view that there's just the material contents of space and time. And laws are just very special, interesting mathematical descriptions of patterns which are themselves simple and highly informative and fit together in a big system. And in that case, it, it, it is not part of the fundamental bedrock of reality. That's it's correct. It's our construct or our best fit to what there is there. That's exactly right. Now, for some people, that's not realist enough for them. Right. And for other people, it is just realist enough. <laughs> so you're saying that those kinds of laws don't, in fact, exist. Yes. My puzzle about them is, without God pushing things around, I don't really understand how these items, laws, could operate to make things happen. It isn't causation, because causation is not something that's in the fundamental bedrock either. So at the bedrock of reality, then, if you're not having laws there, what do you have left? What I have is space-time, and then I have the wave function of the universe. That, I think, is the stuff of the universe, is what's described by mecha quantum mechanics as a kind of wave function. Maybe there's something more. Maybe there are fields also. It, has certain values throughout all of space and time. And out of these values, the laws are constructed. So one might look at the fundamental properties and say, well, what they really are are the sort of things which by their very nature connect up with other properties in a lawful way. Or one might say that by their very nature, they're not involved in laws at all. Laws are just constructed out of the patterns of these. I think that these two views can both be developed in reasonable ways. And although they seem like they contradict each other, it might be at the end of the day, we have to just learn to live with both these views and the idea that they're just two ways of describing the universe, neither one of which wins out over the other one. Barry sees the laws of nature as constructs, not as fundamental realities, though he recognizes that to others, laws are real and fundamental. Paradoxically, he says, both positions may be true at the same time. So if even laws of nature are not fundamental realities, then what happens to my ultimate categories? Most philosophers of science, however, stress physical stuff the physical forces, fields, and particles that compose fundamental physics. Are these my ultimate categories of existence? I ask a leader in the philosophical foundations of physics, philosopher of science, David Albert. It might have been hoped up until the middle of the 19th century or so that we could account for the world completely in terms of the motions of sort of Newtonian material particles. Toward the end of the 19th century, with the development of Maxwellian electromagnetism, it became clear that that wasn't the case, and that the fundamental architecture of the world includes at least one other thing, namely fields. The big thing that's happened in physics since the end of the 19th century that affects these debates a great deal is, uh, is quantum mechanics. And there's a, a debate going on now about what the appropriate sort of ontology of quantum mechanics is, what we ought to read quantum mechanics as telling us fundamentally exists. So I would say at the moment where 
hoping we can get along with an ontology of particles and fields. But of course, you know, science develops and science changes and, and science is full of surprises. And we'll have to see. Of course, other old questions are whether there are all altogether different kinds of entities in the world. Entities like God or mind or the good. And I think that the physical project has been committed from the beginning to at least seeing to what extent to which we can get along with just recognizably physical fundamental entities like particles and fields. But exactly what it is to be a fundamental physical entity is itself an open question. Okay, so let's take quantum mechanics sits below fields and particles in a sense, um, right? Um, in a sense, yes, but quantum mechanics was first read as asserting that particles do weird things, that particles can be in situations where there's no fact of the matter yeah. about where they're located right. in space, or, or that the world was made of these things which are sometimes particles and sometimes waves and so on. None of that was terribly helpful. Okay, so, but my question is still, <laughs> I haven't gotten what an answer. What is there? In other words, it, it, particles and waves you had, and then I, I said quantum mechanics is sitting below it. You weren't, weren't willing to say it that I, way. No, yeah, that's right. I, I don't think quantum mechanics exactly preserves the old categories of particles and fields. In order to fully understand what's going on with quantum mechanics, we're going to have to replace those categories by something altogether different. I think quantum mechanics paints a picture for us where the fundamental objects are fields, but fields not of the kind we're used to that fluctuate right, around right, in three-dimensional right. space right. or four-dimensional okay. space-time, but in a much, much higher dimensional space than that, okay. okay? That is that what's usually called the wave function, which was once regarded as a sort of abstract description of quantum mechanical yeah, yeah. systems, is actually itself what the quantum mechanical systems are. It looks to me at the moment like the best bet is that's what the world is. How about things like abstract objects. It's not God. Good. I mean, like numbers, for example. So my attitude towards those would be you, you get away with as few of them as you can get away with. If you get away with one, that changes your whole if, ontology. If you get away with one, that changes the whole ontology. And there is a sort of vibrant program in metaphysics of nominalism that tries yeah, yeah, to get course. away without right. any. And there have been serious attempts to see how to reconstruct physics without having to logically quantify <laughs> over numbers. That is, without having to commit yourself to the existence of numbers. Whether these projects will succeed and the degree to which they'll succeed remains an open question. Which physics is hard, philosophy is hard. <laughs> which way are you rooting? To try to produce as concrete and mechanical a picture as possible, yeah. Dave's ideal world is an entirely material world. Only the physical is real. Quantum mechanics is fundamental, with no need for God, mind, or abstract objects. I find myself conflicted. On the one hand, I like the simple clarity of a coherent and self-contained physical world. On the other hand, I miss the mystery of realities beyond the physical. But are all scientists radical physicalists? I meet an Australian cosmologist who argues that there is something special about our universe, Luke Barnes. Luke, when you go down to the most fundamental categories of stuff, 
what its existence so that you couldn't reduce it below that. You're, you're a cosmologist, you're, you're a believer. Uh, you know, give me the categories. So at the moment, it looks like we have space-time and we have quantum fields. But the fact that those two, gravity and quantum mechanics, aren't quite talking to each other suggests that there's probably a story underneath those that we just don't know yet. So this is one of the interesting things about, say, naturalism or materialism, that, that uh, everything is just matter, that we don't really know what matter is. We don't know what we're saying when we say that matter is the only thing that exists. There's another sort of realm that's interesting on, on sort of mathematical and abstract truths. And whether we should say that they exist or whether they are just true in some sense is, is a, a very interesting question. Uh, in particular, because it's often framed in terms of is, is mathematics invented or discovered? And the real tug on that for a physicist is that it feels like it's discovered. But then it would need to sort of exist in some sense. But then I don't have a category. That's not a physical thing that exists. It's a something else. It's a not physical thing well, that it's, exists. Well, it's, it's a category of existence that right. is not a physical one. Many abstract objects have a, some kind of an independent existence, yeah. whatever that means. So I, I, I now have two categories. Possibly we can subsume, for, for me at least, subsume that under the category of, of God if, if there is a necessary being who has thoughts. We might be able to sort of throw mathematics in under there. You have necessary ideas in the mind of God. Okay, so mathematics might well, sort well, in but under the, there. Well, what that would imply is that hypothetically, if there were no God, there'd be no abstract objects. So that seems difficult to imagine. It seems to right. be easier to get rid of God than get rid yeah. of abstract objects. There's two ways you could approach that. You could say the thought experiment that there is no God, if God exists necessarily, then it's like saying the thought experiment right, right. of two and two equals seven, right? That's one way around it. It seems okay. it may be a bit cheap. <laughs> the other way would be if there were no God, then it would turn out we were wrong about what we thought mathematical objects were and that they, they were actually something else. Because I see the point of the thought experiment that if there was no God, it seems like two and two would still equal four. <laughs> I, I see, uh, at least within theism, there is a sort of coherent worldview here of I have somewhere to put mathematical objects where I don't have to imagine some separate category of existence. They seem okay. to be ideas, but necessary ideas. I can put them in a necessary mind. And now you have this category of God. Is there anything else, angels or demons or whatever else? Is that, a, is that another category? Or is there a heaven? I, mean, I have a worldview in which those things could have a place. I think they would be a separate category of existence. There's the physical realm and there's this other realm which would have, you know, its own laws, its own properties and, and maybe able to interact. So, physical law, abstract objects, maybe under God, God and this other potential spiritual realm. Possibly. That's your world. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up, I think. To Luke, a theist as well as a cosmologist, the physical world does not exhaust reality. God, by definition, would be its own category. But abstract objects, which theists speculate may sprout from God, may not be its own category. I'm all for categories beyond the physical, but I will not outsource my belief to someone else's faith. But is theism the only alternative to a purely physical reality? How about someone who is not a materialist, but who is also not a theist? I speak with the British polymath, philosopher, physician, social critic, Raymond Tallis. I mean, you can have a big menagerie or a small menagerie when it comes to kinds of beings. On the whole, I have a very rather 
uninspiring menagerie. I think, without doubt, there are material objects. I think, without doubt, there are things like thoughts. I think, without doubt, there are things like persons. That's pretty well the sum total. I've got, of course, within physics, we also quite properly have space and time and energy and so on. All of those things I don't deny. Oh, OK, so you gave me three categories. And, and the first is uh, material objects. And then you have thoughts. And then persons. Now, thoughts uh, and more broadly experiences, I would say. Yes, experiences, then, experiences. Yeah. Okay, and that's different than persons. But experiences, um, some would say, is is derivative of the material world. But I think you'd say experiences are derivative of, of, of persons. Can you have experiences without persons? Yes, I mean the relationship between experiences and the material world is very dif very difficult. Clearly, the material world, as it were, doesn't declare itself. It clearly requires some kind of assistance. What form that assistance is, I don't know. So a material world that's completely uninhabited by conscious beings clearly wouldn't have any self-revelation, it wouldn't reveal itself. I think thoughts, experiences and so on, they're individually very important, but that which they add up to, that temporally deep, internally tied, connected individual, Raymond Tallis, who feels responsible for the things he did in 1973 and will feel responsible for tomorrow, that seems to me something that again transcends, just as experiences transcend the material world, so the person transcends individual experiences. Okay, but you can't have persons without experiences, and no. you can't have experiences without persons, is that right? Well, I suppose you, um, animal sentience would be an example of experience without personhood, experiences being owned oh, okay. or related okay. to each other in a coherent way or related to a person. So in the ultimate bedrock of reality, you have these three big categories, yeah. so material things, sentient things and personhood. Or material things, sensations, experiences and so on, and then persons, yes, absolutely. Ray doesn't disappoint. He offers up a radical trifold ontology of ultimate categories. Material things, sensations or experiences, and persons. Ray seems to count consciousness as foundational. Consciousness as the capacity to have sensations or experiences, and persons as the clustering of conscious elements. I could go with Ray. I myself lean to consciousness as fundamental. And person seems sufficiently special, emergent in some strong sense, to qualify as an ultimate category. But I sense there are other ultimate categories to consider. I want all the options out for examination. Experts differ, of course. Almost all count material things as fundamental. Some add abstract objects, consciousness, God and spiritual realms. George Ellis, I hear, has a radical idea. George is a distinguished mathematician and cosmologist who is not afraid to challenge current belief. George, you have what I think is a different category called possibility spaces yeah. as something that really exists, and I want to understand that. Well, I regard possibility spaces as the deep structure of the universe, and there are two kinds. There are physical ones and there are abstract ones. In physics, we talk about phase spaces, which are possible motions of objects. In quantum physics, we talk about Hilbert spaces. Those are possible states of a quantum system. So those are yeah. possibility states yeah. for those systems. Okay. 
Now, in biology, there's a fantastic discussion by Andreas Wagner in his book, Arrival of the Fittest, in which he talks about possibility spaces for biological systems, and he talks about them explicitly as eternal, unchanging possibilities. He has four categories. He has phenotype, genotype maps related to proteins, related to signal transduction networks, to gene regulatory networks, and to metabolic networks. And these are all based in the way that molecules interact with each other and um, control the way that life exists. And what has happened is, as evolution has taken place, various of those have been realized in living animals, and some of them haven't. But what has happened here in the physical world is made possible by this possibility space. So I believe that possibility space exists in an abstract platonic sense, and at a certain level is more real than the transitory world in which we exist, because that is timeless and eternal, and this stuff comes and goes. I mean, that's, that's a radical idea. You know, as, as, peop as people say about all these questions uh, about existence, thing, it's not that your idea is too, ra is too radical, it's that, is it radical enough? Yeah. And I think, I think this qualifies as radical enough. I'm not sure it's right, but <laughs> let's explore it. Let's, yeah. Well, there's a possibility space for these microbiology stuff. Out of that arises the possibility spaces for animals and the evolutionary landscape, which is the possible animals which could come into existence. This has a subspace of animals with consciousness and then a smaller subspace of animals with self-consciousness. So the possibility of self-consciousness is built into a possibility space and is part of the deep structure of the cosmos from this viewpoint. Okay, now is your possibility spaces different than all possibilities in a modal realism, that everything, anything that you could possibly well, imagine or think, well, everything there is. The, I'm talking about physical possibility spaces, so this isn't anything you could possibly imagine. This is anything which could come into existence given the laws of physics as they okay. do. Now, the other category of possibility spaces is abstract ones, and the one which is the most obvious to mathematicians is the space of mathematical possibilities. And ma many mathematicians are Platonists because they explore prime numbers, for instance. They find prime numbers have certain patterns. They don't invent those patterns, they find them. Um, the square root of two is irrational. People didn't invent that fact, they find it. So this is, again, a timeless, un eternal, unchanging fact. I, I like that, but I, I have to ask this because for someone who is a theist, yeah. if, if possibility spaces are that, are that strong, but that sounds to be a higher order of existence than God would be. That is a very deep kind of question, and I'm going to plead the fifth amendment <laughs> on that. It may be that God, if he exists, she exists, created those possibility spaces, or maybe he is constrained by them. That I don't know. But l l let me take the two most important other ones. There's a possibility space for thoughts, and this is governed by the seemingly platitudinous statement, you can only think a thought if it is possible to think it. Actually, that's a very deep statement. So we can only Actually, have the, the trivial are very deep. <laughs> no, it's, very, it's very deep because this possibility of the discussion that we are happening now has been there since the start of the universe. It's been realized at this moment, but that possibility has always been there. The fact that you can think about it doesn't mean it exists in reality. Part of the subspace of thoughts is fairies and dragons. It doesn't right. mean they exist. Right. Part of that subspace is gods. It doesn't 
It doesn't mean it exists now. But what does exist, a subspace of that space, is the space of ethics. And so in this sense, it's possible to think about what is right and wrong because it's part of this possibility space of thoughts. In that sense, the concept of ethics is built into the very foundations of the universe. Now, I think that is a very powerful statement. Yeah, but I'm, I'm not, uh, is, is that right? Because what you're saying is possibility because of any thought. So I can, I can think bad thoughts. And that's been a possibility space. How do you know they're bad thoughts? We're getting into whether morality is absolute or relative. There's two separate issues. The first issue is it's possible to think about moral thought. The second thing is a much deeper step. Is there a metric on those? Is there, in fact, absolute statement about what is right and what is wrong? Now, I, I maintain that anybody has to agree that there is a possibility of thinking moral thoughts. Yeah, that's that. Where the disagreement can come is, are there absolute stands of right and wrong? So I'm drawing a sharp distinction. I think the possibility of thinking about ethics is there, period. The possibility of saying what is actually good and bad, I think it's there, but this is where I'm stepping across a boundary. And I, I, I cannot justify it in logical terms. I just say, this is what I believe. What exists is among the deepest of questions. What exists sets the foundations for reality. What are the minimum number of ultimate categories of existence such that no category can be explained by any other category? I am not going to answer this question. My ambition here is more limited. I seek a set of possibilities, the largest list of possible ultimate categories. Almost everyone agrees that the physical material world is real. Many scientists and philosophers, of course, start and stop with the physical material world. To them, all else is superstition or wishful thinking. Others, gamely, add categories, abstract objects, consciousness, awareness, experiences, God, spiritual realms, possibility spaces. I'm striving for a full set of ultimate categories of what exists. Did I miss any? If anyone knows a category I've missed, please tell me. Please help me get closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.